What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Think it'll scare the kids? The kids? This will give the parents nightmares. Is that good? It's fantastic. If our audience ever takes a big dip, Josh, let's maybe not go with the giant man-eating lizard to boost ratings. Great. Now I got to return this giant man-eating lizard. <laughs> well, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. There may be another use for that dinosaur. Jurassic World's Irfan Khan and Bryce Dallas Howard in that clip they're talking about a giant man-eating lizard, but they could, of course, be talking about the movie itself. Will Jurassic World traumatize kids the way a recent viewing of Jurassic Park did mine? Our review, plus we revisit the top five movie locations we wish we could visit. Important caveat, visit and not be killed by a dinosaur. Ahead on Film Spotting. very pleased to be brought to you once again by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. And Josh, apparently Mubi is gearing up for the John Cassavetes Marathon we have been promising on this show since roughly 2007. If you want to get prepared for it, you can subscribe to Mubi and check out The Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Think about Cassavetes, which directors today have really picked up the mantle from him. I'm not sure, even though there are a lot of different directors who have a similar style that anyone has really taken up where he left off his way with actors, his raw observation, and his ear for earthy, freeform dialogue. They're still unmatched. And here, he shifted from verite towards genre style for a jazzy, suspenseful, wholly outstanding riff on film noir. It's from 1976, and the gangster film was made new. With Mikey and Nikki, Mubi is moving from Cassavetes behind the camera to Cassavetes in front, written and directed by the great and too unheralded Elaine May. Speaking of film spotting marathons, mm-hmm. we'll be getting to her coming up in just a bit here. Mikey and Nikki is described by Mubi as an eloquent two-hander and a lost treasure from the 70s golden age of Hollywood, co-starring a never better Peter Falk. You mentioned Elaine May, and that is a marathon still very much in our plans for this year, and Mikey and Nikki is one of the films that is on the docket, so Mubi just might be your ticket to see that film. Every day, movies curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Listeners of Film Spotting can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash Film Spotting to redeem now. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Film Spotting. You're listening to Film Spotting. For the top five this week, Josh and I whisk you away to some of the most magical locations in the history of movies, like a smoky press room, a submarine, and an urban dreamscape as imagined by the visionary Woody Allen. Okay, we're totally lame, we admit it. But hey, we hope you do stick around anyway for the top five movie locations we wish we could visit. Josh, this is a revisit of a top five and I actually think it's a pretty good one, so we'll see if we pulled it off when we get there. First, though, a visit to a place that no sane person should want to go, but they keep selling tickets anyway. Jurassic World. Every time we've unveiled a new attraction, attendance has spiked. That was awesome! Clark, 
Brit felt genetic modification would up the wow factor. They're dinosaurs. Wow enough. She was designed to be bigger than the T-Rex. What happened to the sibling? She ate it. We have an asset out of containment. What is that? Her tracking implant. She clawed it out. How would it know to do that? She remembered where they put it in. No one's impressed with dinosaurs anymore. So says Bryce Dallas Howard's corporate executive in Jurassic World. Perhaps that's why this franchise, first launched by Steven Spielberg in 1993 with Jurassic Park, has been on a 14-year hiatus. But now it's back, with safety-not-guaranteed director Colin Trevorrow making the leap into blockbuster territory, and here is its new hook. This time, to bring back the crowds, the park has been reopened not only with the dinosaurs from history, but with new genetically modified beasts to up the thrill factor. Things do not, as they say in movies that feature humans slipping into monstrous gullets, go well. So the challenge for Jurassic World, the movie, is the same as the challenge for the park. To re-energize audiences with creatures that, to quote Dallas Howard again, are bigger, louder, with more teeth. What do you think, Adam? Does the movie have some fun with this challenge, or are Dallas Howard's words simply the desperate truth? Were you impressed by what they concocted in Jurassic World? Well, first of all, I want to say that I hate you for concocting such a good little setup there in the 10 minutes we've had since we walked out of the theater. Much better than I could do. I, I left. I missed the last 20 minutes to do this. Sorry. <laughs> you started prepping early. See, you're just such a consummate <laughs> professional. No, that's a really good place to start, I think, because there's a lot of commenting on itself throughout this movie and a lot of really self-aware throwbacks to the original Jurassic Park. And if you had told me that going in, knowing that Colin Trevorrow, the guy with the sense of humor, the sort of whimsy who made Safety Not Guaranteed, was the guy directing this, I would have said, well, that's probably going to go well. I appreciate that it is self-aware like that. But you used the word desperate. I had scribbled in my notes the word apology. It's almost like it's apologizing for itself a little bit to have to be that self-aware and comment on itself in that way. And I feel like this is a little bit more of that. It's a little bit more desperate feeling than it is really a smart take on this material. One of the lines I wrote down as well is early in the film, Bryce Dallas Howard's character, this corporate ice queen to the hilt. She's showing around some potential money, some potential sponsors. And I believe says, they're Verizon executives. Exactly, yeah. So now we can get a we'll little probably, cash from Verizon we'll probably for that. comment on that <laughs> later as well and give them double their money, Josh, which at this point is actually nothing. So they're getting great value. But she's showing them around. She says, what do you guys want? What are you looking for? And one of the sponsors, potential sponsors says, we want to be thrilled. And I think that is Trevorrow kind of winking at us. Everybody in the theater watching a movie like Jurassic World just wants to be thrilled. And having rewatched, we've talked about it a little bit, Jurassic Park recently. I did it a year or so ago. You just did it with the family over the weekend. Even though I don't love it as much as a lot of people do when they saw it originally, I wouldn't put it maybe in the top 10 Spielberg films or near the bottom of the 10 favorite Spielberg films. There are thrilling sequences, some great cinematic sequences, and there's fear there in a way as an adult you can be a little bit unnerved and be on the edge of your seat i didn't really feel that ever with this film i didn't feel like there were any truly cinematic sequences anything that made me feel the awe the jurassic park made me feel and i did jump in my seat but that's what the scares were here they were more kind of got you 
moments that do make you jump a little bit but aren't really that rewarding. And honestly, even though this movie is fine, it really was not a bad movie. It's not a movie, Josh, that I'm going to sit here and say I think won't do huge box office. We saw it with some critics but also with a large IMAX crowd, and they were applauding at they the love, end. They love the T-Rex. They were into all the crowd-pleasing moments that were clearly there to generate that response. So I think it'll probably go over well with a lot of audiences, but I never felt that sense of awe, and I knew I was in trouble really about 10 minutes in when we hear that John Williams score, that iconic moment from Jurassic Park that everybody talks about, we've talked about, that first moment when you see the dinosaur, when Sam Neill and Laura Dern see it, and you feel like you're looking at a dinosaur on screen the way you've never seen something look that big before and really give you that feeling of awe, and that score just so perfectly supports it. We hear that score in a moment where instead of seeing something truly awe-inspiring like a brontosaurus or a T-Rex or whatever, we're actually looking at a theme park. I think that kind of underlines the whole movie for me in a nutshell. But that's not a subversive moment or a, or no. a winking moment either. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I would say there is one cinematic sequence that is pretty impressive, and that's the gyroscope okay, scene. I noted the that two one boys too. are that was in the one this I wrote ball, down. this gerbil mm-hmm. ball, essentially, yep. and they're being attacked. That's really well done. I think there's also a fun sequence. Because it feels like the T-Rex sequence, though, from Jurassic Park. It's, well, it is a callback a little bit, but it's also well-staged and intense and suspenseful and, yes, cinematic. I mean, mm-hmm. they're, they're using more than just effects there to generate that suspense. I also think the pterodactyl attack on, on the crowd is kind of fun and in an old 50s monster movie Mm -hmm. way, but really that's about all that I can say that's good about Jurassic World. And it does come back to that knowingness that it seems to want to exhibit. Partly, though, it becomes pandering in a way to evoke emotions. They know at this point that the generational gap is that parents who were maybe raised or grew up on Jurassic Park will now be taking their kids to Jurassic World. So there's a demographic they're going after Mm -hmm. with this knowingness. So there's a mercenary element to it as well. And it's also that they're not using it at all to be subversive is too strong of a word, but to really question or prod or undermine in any playful way this franchise. All the knowingness is to prop it up. And I think the product placement is, you know, Critics have been harping on product placement for decades now, but I think here it is really reflective of what is, in essence, the movie spirit, because there is an extended scene in the control room with Bryce Dallas Howard, Jake Johnson from Safe Not Guaranteed. My guy. Your your guy. He comes on board here. Who has the funniest moment in this film, Josh. (laughs) Yeah, and and then he gets stuck doing a lot of really long and awkward reaction Yeah, just shots. making weird faces. The, the poor guy. I felt bad for him. In close-up. But they have this conversation with other people as well about the sponsors here yeah. that are vying to have a part of this park. And the movie wants you to wink about that the entire time Bryce Dallas Howard is holding a Starbucks cup. And so it's this trying to have it both ways element that just makes it not worth bothering at all and undercuts any sort of other level that this movie might have to help it be of interest. You're absolutely right, Josh. And I think you hit it when you mentioned the mercenary aspect of it, because I was trying to figure out one of the things I had scribbled down is the word pandering that you use. That's how it feels. But I'm thinking about the audience that's going to go see this this weekend. Isn't the bulk of the audience going to be younger people who probably don't have much of a recollection 
if they saw it at all, of the original film Jurassic Park. I think there's a big market these days for parents taking their kids hmm. to reboots of things right. they grew up on. And, and that's what I felt. There's that long scene where the two boys stumble upon the original Jurassic Park lobby. And it, it really kind of brings the action to a standstill. Mm-hmm. The only reason you would find that affecting at all is if you have a fairly detailed memory of the first film. So they're putting that in there, yeah. counting on people having, as I did in the last few days, I'm part of this demographic too. I watched Jurassic Park with my kids for the first time, as you mentioned. They're counting on people like us looking at these callbacks and somehow just referencing it, evoking an appreciation. Yeah. And there's a laziness to that as well, where the filmmakers are simply relying on the reference to engender our love for this current mm-hmm. film. And if you don't use that to move it in a new direction or to do something different with the idea, then it doesn't work for me. Yeah, there's definitely a cribbing of Spielberg, too, not just in all the mentions of Jurassic Park, but there's one sequence where I think it's as they're approaching the old Jurassic Park. They find it out in the jungle when they're kind of on the run. And the way they're walking up, it's the two boys who are the main characters, well, sort of the main characters here with Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard, just as there were two kids at the center of Jurassic Park. They're walking up, and the way they approach even is very much like Raiders of the Lost Ark. Indiana Jones walking up to one of these old temples or something. It kind of starts on the close-up of his feet as they approach. It feels very much like Raiders. And then, of course, there's the Jaws nod that so many films have made where the big monster that's going to be at the center of this movie, we only get introduced to it in little snippets before we finally really get to see it. Though I didn't feel as odd by it, to go back to that word, as I did about the T-Rex in Jurassic Park. For all the buildup, of this creature, this great genetic monstrosity, it never really impressed me in just a basic kind of popcorn way. No, I would agree. And I was surprised how much the movie relied on CGI dinosaur creations to generate that awe on the part of the audience. Because the reason it worked in Jurassic Park 1993 is it was one of the first times we'd seen anything Mm -hmm. like that. And it still does hold up really well, considering how many years have passed and how the technology has progressed. That was enough then. It's not quite enough now. Now you need to incorporate such CGI creations into the movie more seamlessly with the live action and to create a cinematic sequence around it. That's why the gyroscope scene works, because it does all that. But too many of the wonder moments in this film are just shots of CGI dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. And at this point, that is nothing new. There's nothing particularly unique about how they're done here to make them stand apart. And so I don't think that was a wise bid on the filmmaker's part is to put a lot of their eggs in that basket. Now, because we've mentioned them a couple of times as characters, those two brothers are played by Ty Simpkins and Nick Robinson. What does it say about Jurassic World and where he is and audiences seem to appreciate him at this point that we've gotten this far into the review and not mentioned Chris Pratt? He's prominently featured in Mm -hmm. the trailer. I've talked to people who are big fans of his, excited that he was cast in this, really saw that as a sign of hope. Oh, they've they've got someone who's got a personality, a unique presence. Maybe that will be another element, because I don't think any of the Jurassic franchise human characters have made much of an impact on us. Jeff Goldblum? Come on. Uh, well, aside from the Wayne fact Knight? that I've, I've tried to dress like him ever since 1993, no, we all? not much of an impact. But really, I mean, Chris Pratt here gets maybe one or two amusing lines. Yeah. 
He gets a lot of those sort of manly Indiana Jones-ish poses. <laughs> exactly. Well, Lots of Indiana Jones. What was the Jones. one where he gets into an elevator and he's just waiting for the door to close? And <laughs> just like, looking It holds awesome. for like eight seconds and, you know, not even doing anything awesome. Yeah. No, you're right. The only thing that he really does in this movie, and I like Chris Pratt in a lot of stuff, but all he really has to do here is smolder. Yeah. And he smolders pretty well. He makes some pretty manly faces at the camera. He does, but that's it's, about it. And it's it's straight smoldering. I mean, even exactly. in Guardians of the Galaxy, a yeah. movie that I did not like as much as most people, at least there he was winking in a good way. Here he's not even winking. And maybe it's because he's stuck with a scene where he has to pet a brontosaurus and it's dying gasps. I mean, how does he turn into the, the dinosaur whisper in this movie? <laughs> I never understood why printed on them early. Josh. There are the movie huge, covers that huge plot problems in this film that, you know, of course, a Jurassic Park movie is going to have plot problems that you could nitpick. But I think a major one here that undercuts a lot of the tension, at least it did for me, is what in the world is Chris Pratt doing here? Mm-hmm. He, he's supposed to be training these velociraptors. But then as soon as Vincent D'Onofrio, who we've got to get into, I mean, yeah, the guy can barely walk. Or was that part of the character? I don't know. Who don't knows know. with him, I don't too, know. as an actor? Well, he, he He'll is pull such, out those traits. He is such a quirky actor that maybe he decided to throw that in. But Vincent D'Onofrio shows up and starts telling Chris Pratt, from what I could understand, we want to use these raptors as soldiers now that they're trained. And Chris Pratt immediately like goes off the handle, like, right. how dare you— well, what was he training them yeah, for? Yeah, it was just for education. I, I didn't it was understand. Just to what, test how smart they were. There are or a lot of like smart alecky, disgruntled employees in Jurassic World. Jake Johnson is one of them. They just well, go around yelling at their bosses about why they created this park. I don't know, I know how they ever got hired. No, and when they're not doing that, we get like the classic cliched schlubby security guard. Oh, that he's guy was, guarding. That guy. He lasted longer guarding. than I thought. Oh, to be I know. Honest you with knew you. he was. He was a goner, but he's guarding this. $26 million investment that yes. also could just wreak havoc on the world if it's unleashed. And they've got this and they've got this guy like eating Cheetos who yeah. can't find his keys. It's it's pretty ridiculous. But, and it no doesn't doubt. play like as a joke, though. No, it really doesn't. It doesn't. No, you just know that he's going to get eaten and we're supposed to enjoy it. And actually, that's another thing I wanted to come back to a little bit is that I don't want to overstate it, but there's a little bit of a meanness to this movie that I didn't really appreciate that much. I mean, when you talk about the CGI dinos, how much the movie just kind of revels in us taking in that spectacle. Usually what they're doing when they're not biting into other dinosaurs is they're eating humans in a variety of ways, which Mm -hmm. aren't necessarily that interesting. And there was something, I can't help it, I guess I'm too much of a humanist, Josh, but I found it a little bit off-putting that the movie will take the time out to give us this ridiculously cliched moment where Bryce Dallas Howard is finally going to realize the error of her cold ways and all of her wrong priorities in life because she's going to see this poor dying dinosaur and then see more of them as the dino whisperer consoles the dinosaur. We get that a real time out in the movie where Trevorrow is clearly asking us to appreciate these dinosaurs, appreciate these creatures as these living once living, breathing, now struggling, suffering creatures. But it doesn't give that same respect at all to any of the human beings. I mean, there's an assistant in this movie who you also know is probably going to go at some point. And the movie just relishes 
watching her go in the most spectacular way possible. And we all get to kind of just laugh at it because, well, we didn't really get to know her anyway. I'm sure she doesn't have parents who are missing her. You know what? She seemed kind of snotty to me. Exactly. That's basically, that's that's, how paper thin all these characters are. Well, that's part of the monster movie sequence. And it's played at that level. And it is maybe out of sense with the other notes the movie is trying to hit. You felt bad for the humans. I eventually felt bad for the dinosaurs. This ends up in the last maybe 20, 25 minutes to be just shooting down these beasts or unleashing them on each other. On each other, yeah. At some point, these velociraptors that have been trained, they kept switching sides, too. I mean, you know, and so what eventually happens is, are you supposed to feel like you're on the side of these velociraptors? Because then all of a sudden they switch sides and they're going after the humans and then they're getting shot at or mauled. And there's just a lot of death that feels senseless, Mm -hmm. I think is what it is. I mean, we we expect death in a movie like this. And I, I... I think neither of us are saying we didn't want anyone to die, but there's a senselessness to it here that's just a little bit um, deadening and depressing by the end. Now, the people getting it, that could have made for a good satire if the movie wanted to go this way. One of the cultural conversations going on right now that I was thinking maybe we're going to get this is this idea of places like SeaWorld or even zoos. People are talking now. Mm -hmm. Is the traditional zoo something that we should continue as a culture or have we learned enough about animals to understand that there's a different way of appreciating them? And the SeaWorld tie-in is direct when that monster fish goes after. I like that Jaws reference, how Jaws is brought to feed the bigger monster. That was pretty clever. Mm -hmm. And so here's an element where... If they wanted to go full bore and make this sort of a the animals rise up against us, the zoo visitors or the SeaWorld visitors. Now, obviously, they're not going to get this political, but at least it was a thread that would have, even if it was just referenced here or there, would have made not only the whole movie more interesting, but also have given maybe some of all this human death a little bit of a subversive tweak. Exactly. Not that we need that, but when the movie introduces it, you hope maybe it's going to follow through a little bit. Similar to the way it brings up in the first 30 minutes, we probably hear the word control about 17 times. Like it may do something interesting with that theme between people and animals, whatever, nature. It doesn't. It certainly doesn't because we get these kind of easy transformations in all of the characters, or at least the characters that need those transformations. And we've referenced some of the other movies it's similar to, obviously Jurassic Park. I was thinking it's Jurassic Park meets a little bit of the impossible. That same way, it's an island disaster and people everywhere, and you are hoping this family is going to reunite with each other. As much as I didn't want to flash back to that film, Josh, at least that movie actually did As manipulative as it was, probably because it was so manipulative, it got me at times, even when I didn't want it to get me, it got me emotional. This movie goes for some of those same sentimental moments, and for whatever reason, I simply didn't feel it. The other movie, though, getting to your notion of subversion, that it really reminded me of, and I'm guessing most people who love this movie will also see it, is Aliens. It's the James Cameron aliens a little bit, where you've got the D'Onofrio character and Bryce Dallas Howard a little bit. They're both sort of a composite of Paul Reiser's Burke, the corporate stooge Mm -hmm. who's out only for the greed and he's on the military side. That's certainly there in D'Onofrio's character. And Pratt kind of gets to be Sigourney Weaver. He gets to be Ripley, right? The only one who really knows what's going on and who gets it and is not only fighting the creatures, but also fighting the bureaucracy, if you will. But it doesn't have any of the satire of a movie like Aliens, even when we get a scene that feels very much like the Marines first gearing up for battle in that movie. 
we get that here when the first crew is dispatched to go and try to bring down this dinosaur that has gotten loose. But there was a moment that I did like that follows this, which is that scene where the crew basically gets picked off one by one, also a little bit like aliens, and they all have monitors on them. So it feels a little bit too like the Born Identity movies where they're all watching these screens and they see it happening. And the coldness of all those soldiers just getting ticked off, just all of a sudden they're there. And then the next moment, their heartbeat yeah, is gone on the, the screen. on the screen. I did like that touch, and that felt like something a little more closer in spirit to an Aliens, where the movie maybe had a little bit of a point, but then when that's completely contradicted by how much fun it has, yeah. watching humans getting eaten by dinosaurs, then there's not really anywhere you can go with that. Yeah, because that, that moment with the heartbeat line is clearly meant to emphasize each of these lives matters. We're watching each one go out, mm-hmm. but it, it doesn't align at all with what we see later. I think, you know, to your point about the sentimentality, there's something very maybe retro is a polite word, but dated, I think, is maybe a more accurate word to the emotional appeals made in this movie. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned, Bryce Dallas Howard's character is this corporate ice queen is the word you used, I think. And and she's, you know, that just seems very dated to me. Like she's decided to put her career ahead of family. Her sister Mm -hmm. even mentioned something about all the gender politics or kids. Yeah. Questionable. It's it's just really strange though. The worst moment for a kiss ever in an action movie too. Oh my goodness. And now Jake Johnson, again, in his defense, nicely, well, that's the funny that one. one. That's no, the good one. That's the good one. That, yeah, yeah. But, that's the but subversive it's like the one. movie doesn't realize that you don't have to have the bad one exactly. to have the funny one later. But also in terms of the sentimentality, th- this idea that these boys' parents are on impending divorce and we only see them at the very beginning. Yeah. And then, and then, the then very we see end. them in the last 30 seconds. And that is supposed to be our emotional through line right. that this tragedy will save their marriage. I mean, that, yeah. that was Nothing worn out in like, like, a crisis. in like the eighties. So <laughs> it's just a very, and that's not a callback. I think that's just a lazy mm-hmm. screenwriting. Jurassic world is out in wide release this weekend. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. We'll have the results of the film spotting poll when we come back in which listeners will hopefully have come to their senses and chosen Lloyd Dobler over William Miller as their favorite Cameron Crowe hero. Don't hold your breath, Josh. Plus, has Melissa McCarthy finally found a movie worthy of her comedic talent? A Larson Recommends review of Spy might just be next. Stay with us. I could go on talking stop bring out each memory till I get every drop sift through the details of the others involved the true crime would be thinking it's just one person's fault like an honest signature on a fake ID like the guilty conscience with the innocent
Yeah? You look good. You do too. Thank you. You look, uh, you look like a racehorse or something. <laughs> yeah. I look like a oh, racehorse. I don't know. Yeah, I said that. Just... Well, there's worse things. <laughs> I don't know. Things just come out of my head sometimes. I don't know. No. I always say the wrong thing, but you, what I meant to say is you look really good. Have a seat. David Gordon Green. Offering once beloved actors a chance at redemption since 2013. This is film spotting with Adam and Josh. That was Al Pacino and Holly Hunter. And that clip from the new film from director David Gordon Green, Manglehorn. An interesting little movie. We have both seen this movie, though it doesn't open in Chicago until June 19th. I believe opening in select cities as well. Interesting is where you're at right now. That's where huh? I'm at okay. right now. That we'll see if pretty, we have... pretty on the fence there. Yeah, I don't know that I'm that on the fence. Oh, but okay. There are some interesting things going on. That's a good safe word, Josh, before getting <laughs> too much more detailed. We may talk about that movie in more detail in a couple weeks on the show. Green, of course, also directed the once-beloved Nicolas Cage in 2013's Joe, was here on the show to talk about that movie with one of the stars of Joe, Ty Sheridan. You could even say that Green's actor resurrection program goes back to 2008 with James Franco in Pineapple Express. He hadn't really been in a comedy since Freaks and Geeks on TV and I didn't particularly care for that movie, but Franco's pretty funny in it. I think you did like it. Yeah, Pineapple Express is good. It's probably the best of Green's unfortunate foray into dumb comedy, I would say. Yeah, I would say that as well of the ones I've seen. Coming up in just a bit, this week's poll asks you about your favorite Al Pacino performance since his Oscar win in 1992. Yes, there are some quite good ones. But first, the results from our last poll where we did ask you to name your favorite Cameron Crowe hero. Last week, we did add our voices to the chorus of boos that unfortunately met the latest from Crow Aloha. That's with Bradley Cooper, Rachel McAdams, and the, is it Hawaiian Chinese-American actress Emma Stone? Right. Okay, didn't realize that about her. But, no. Well, you learn things. We also revisited Crow's much better directing debut, Say Anything with a Sacred Cow Review. So your options for favorite Crow hero were Lloyd Dobler, John Cusack and Say Anything, Janet Livermore and Steve Dunn from Singles, that's Bridget Fonda and Campbell Scott, or maybe Jerry Maguire himself, Tom Cruise, or William Miller from Almost Famous, Patrick Fugit playing a young Cameron Crowe, more or less, in that movie. And finally, we did give you, just for kicks, just to see where it would land, we gave you Orlando Bloom's Drew Baylor from Elizabethtown. Not surprisingly, Drew Baylor, last place. Yeah, that's where we thought he would land. Only 2%, though, with 3% was Janet Livermore and Steve Dunn from Singles. Jumping up here in the middle, Jerry Maguire. Tom Cruise got 12% of the vote. And up top... Despite our championing for the right vote, Lloyd Dobler only got 37% of the vote and lost to William Miller with 46% of the we vote. We knew they would battle it out. It was going to come down between Lloyd Dobler and William Miller. And me being one of the biggest fans of Almost Famous on the planet, I'm not going to fight this one too hard. But we really did push for Lloyd Dobler. And the numbers did shrink a little bit. We might have we had, had an, an effect. Yeah, because okay, it well, was, I feel good about that. It was a little higher. I think it was more 15 to 20% difference. The gap got bridged a little bit, but it is William Miller in first place. You know, I also feel good that we don't have that much influence. It's nice to see independent <laughs> exactly. minds out there, even if they're wrong. Oh, yeah. Thomas Darjean, my favorite oh, listener. Thomas. I love it when he writes in. He's from Lyon. 
France, at least formerly. He says, I adore Almost Famous like few other movies, but let's be honest, the main character isn't that compelling. Sure, he is cute in his awkward, precocious teenager sort of way, but mostly he lacks presence and is only witty with a pen in his hand, not to mention how annoyingly naive and innocent he can be. Lloyd Dobler, on the other hand, is fun, cool, and genuinely funny. He's the guy you want to spend your time with and gets my vote here. But really... It's Penny Lane we all want to hang out with, and whoever says otherwise is lying or has no heart. And in fact, a common bit of feedback we got was, where is Penny Lane? Why isn't she one of Crow's heroes in our poll? Yeah, that would have been interesting to see where she would have landed. Agreed. Maybe would have won it. So Almost Famous would have won anyway, but we really were just being pretty literal there about Hero going with protagonist. And it's hard with a true ensemble movie like Singles. I think that at the end of the day, Campbell Scott and Bridget Fonda's characters are kind of the co-leads of that movie. But Penny Lane is definitely a supporting character in Almost Famous, not the crow surrogate that clearly William Miller is. That was our thinking there, but we certainly understand all of the love for Penny Lane. We also heard from James McKinley in Indianapolis. I am not shocked that Almost Famous is winning this, considering the film's spotting audience. However, I am shocked that Jerry Maguire is so low on votes. Are people insane? Who doesn't cry during the You Complete Me scene toward the end of the film? Jerry has the biggest transition of any of the characters on the list. Shame on all of you that voted for anyone else. Have a nice day. Well, <laughs> James Shame backs on you. off a little bit there on his and anger. Then, then a smiley face emoji. <laughs> yes. That's our audience, Josh. You got to love it. James has a point. Jerry Maguire probably does have the biggest reversal, if you will, of the characters. But hey, I would have voted for Jerry Maguire before William Miller. Hmm. Jerry Maguire is actually my favorite Cameron Crowe movie. Yeah, I saw that. And I like it. I really do. But I saw your ranking on Letterboxd. I had been considering doing the same thing, ranking his films. I haven't seen We Bought a Zoo, so it couldn't be complete. You, yet you have to see We Bought a Zoo before you come down definitively on Cameron Crowe. I know. And that's why I didn't do it. But the other factor in why I didn't do it was that my list would just be pretty boring, really, because I don't have anything that's a little bit contrarian like you do, putting Jerry Maguire that high. I would definitely have almost famous, probably in that number one slot, battling yeah. to say anything. So it just wouldn't really be that against conventional wisdom. I didn't even bother. Put it down there for record. Maybe. You have to have it on Maybe the record. Maybe I will. With an asterisk, have yet to see We Bought a Zoo and never will. <laughs> By the time the show goes up, I will perhaps rank okay. my Camera Crow films. We will certainly link to your ranking in the show notes at filmspotting.net. Patricia in Portland, Oregon writes in, I went with Janet Livermore slash Steve Dunn, but only because I think that William Miller is going to win. And because I love the movie Singles in a way one can only love a movie when you watch it too many times as a teenager. And because Cameron Crow named a character Janet Livermore. Janet Livermore! Exclamation <laughs> point. Is that that odd of a name? It's kind of a doozy. Would we not find many Livermores in the phone book? I don't think so. Okay. Well, not in movies, anyway. That brings us back to Al Pacino and this week's poll question. Josh, the last time we reviewed a movie starring Al Pacino, can this be right? We've got to get the intern on this. I'm not sure about this math, but it was 2008, and it really was only morbid curiosity that had us checking it out. Righteous Kill, Uniting. Al Pacino and Robert De Niro for the first time since Michael Mann's Heat. Man, that film was so bad it was bad, really. It was pretty brutal. And I constantly mix it up with the other brutal one. 88 Minutes, was that it? The other Pacino? They came out, was it the same year, I think? It might have been. That was was a rough span. Certainly really close together. Worth acknowledging, of course, if you haven't picked up on it over the years, that Al Pacino has been a big part of every single episode of Film Spotting, at least very early in its run. It's that voice, Al Pacino, you hear at the top of every show. 
What kind of show are you putting on here today? <laughs> Hoo-ah. That was, Hoo-ah. Your, that was your Pacino? I think he leaves that out of well, that line. He does. Thank you, funny voice guy Josh. As oh. we mentioned earlier, Pacino's latest Manglehorn from David Gordon Green opens next weekend in select cities. Our poll asks you to name Pacino's best performance since he won for playing Colonel Frank Slade in 1992's Sen of a Woman. Your options, and we had only really three options originally as we were discussing this poll over email with our co-producer Sam, because I think those are the three that are going to emerge as the biggest contenders for the top spot. But there are some other pretty decent movies in here. They're going to finish at the bottom, but I still thought it was probably worth including, Josh. The options are... Carlito and Carlito's Way, Will Dormer in Insomnia, Lefty Ruggiero in Donnie Brasco, Lieutenant Vincent Hanna in Heat, Lowell Bergman in The Insider. I actually had forgotten that he was in The Insider. Yeah. And then we are going to provide an other category in case you're a fan of Any Given Sunday, the aforementioned Righteous Kill. Devil's Advocate. Devil's Advocate. There's a lot of hoo-ha going on in exactly. there. Exactly. I mean, really, that is reserved for the super over-the-top, larger-than-life Pacino. <laughs> yes. If that's what you love, then There's other, your category. Yeah, other is really for you. But I think it's going to be between Donnie Brasco and Heat. And The Insider, though, some people really do appreciate the Christopher Nolan film, Insomnia. So we'll see how that one does. I haven't actually thought too much about where I'm going with this. It's hard because we considered going with favorite Al Pacino movies since 1992. And I think it's more interesting to really consider his performances than the movies themselves. But you kind of can't help but look at the movies and think, well, which one's my favorite? That's probably my favorite performance. So I don't know how you come out, Josh, but The Insider was actually just on. I don't know why. I was flipping channels the other night. It was late. And I haven't seen even a scene from that movie since I saw it originally in the theater. And man, it was hard to turn it off. It was just getting so late I had to go to bed. But I probably watched half that movie. And Pacino's really good. And Russell Crowe's really good. I mean, the acting, of course, you expect that from those two guys overall. In a Michael Mann film, that film is just as good as I remembered it. And Pacino is really subtle. He's at his subdued best as Lowell Bergman in The Insider. So honestly, that could be it. But... I love those other two movies, too. So Yeah, it strikes me from memory that Donnie Brasco is also a subdued best type of performance. I think in The Heat, you get a little more of that oh, yeah. Pacino, but it's also modulated from what I remember a little bit, with but there's the some rest of the bits. film. But there might be some, yeah. So maybe at this point, I'm leaning towards Donnie Brasco. All right. Well, I'll try to pin myself down here by the time we reveal the results. You can help us out. You can vote now at filmspotting.net for your favorite Pacino performance since 92. And if you leave a comment, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're writing from. Maybe Josh will get some love for some of his turns on HBO movies like Angels in America. There have been a few others as well. A little bit of housekeeping here for our Chicago land listeners. A new movie starring Kate Winslet and Alan Rickman, reuniting them from Sense and Sensibility, though Rickman here is directing this movie, and I believe he co-wrote the screenplay. It's called A Little Chaos. It is set in 1682. I believe Winslet's character plays a real-life character who was tasked with building the main garden at the Palace of Versailles. It opens in Chicago on June 26th. There's going to be an advanced screening of it on Monday, June 22nd at the Landmark, and we have 40 Admit Two Passes to give away. Again, the screening is Monday, June 22nd. If you're interested in seeing that movie for free before it comes out, you can go to filmspotting.net, and there will be more information and a link to enter right there in the top stories. Another thing that wanted to give a little bit of love to, Josh, because we were 
contacted by some people involved with the festival. There is a group called JCC Chicago. They're a nonprofit serving more than 15,000 families across the city, and they're hosting their second annual Chicago Jewish Film Festival, the first of its kind in Chicago with 16 films from across the globe that hopefully will move audiences to connect with Jewish culture like never before. And there's more information about that film festival as well in our show notes. The website is chicagojewishfilm.org. Also that week, mentioned it on our last show, Josh, but starting that week, June 24th, I think you can tell because the panic is starting to already set in. How's how's the syllabus coming? I think it's done. I think it's set. My Crisis of Faith movies class. Summer fun. <laughs> Crisis of Faith. Bergman. Brisson. Summer school, huh? Let's be miserable together, <laughs> contemplating the larger questions yep. of life this and This is death. how you spend the warm days? With me. I'm just a riot. I'm we're just not, a riot. We're not really selling this. I'm not, but registration so far is going well. Good. Would love to have some more students. It's still... 10 to 14 days away, so plenty of time if you are considering having some summer fun indoors watching these great films. Not only Bergman and Brisson, we're probably going to watch some Tarkovsky, we're going to watch some Dreyer, maybe even a little bit of Cone Brothers. It's open to anybody at the University of Chicago's Graham School, and this is, I think, the seventh class I've taught or co-taught, and once the panic subsides and I actually am prepared, I will be excited to teach it. It begins the 24th of June. And I'll be there on the last class to That's light right. things up with Kurosawa's Ikiru. The finale. We're saving We're Josh going out for last. something light and frothy. <laughs> exactly. So if you're interested in that brand of light and frothy, all the information you need about that class as well at our website, topstoriesfilmspotting.net. If the film is by Wes Anderson, then it will make his list. Or from Pixar or Disney, well, you get the gist. But heavy-handed messages really aren't his thing. Time for Larson Recommends on Film Spotting. It's been a while since we've had an installment of Larson Recommends. At the end of last week's show, we joked, mainly joked, that we were a little bit more interested in seeing perhaps Entourage than Spy. Not really true, especially with Jason Statham. I'm sorry, I'm going to take Jason Statham over Adrian Grenier any day of the week. But Melissa McCarthy, so far has not really found the right vehicle since Bridesmaids, at least for her in a leading role. I think we would agree, the ones, again, that I have seen. And you did check out Spy. The theme song says that heavy-handed messages are really not your thing. I'm hoping that Spy didn't try to offer any such heavy-handed messages. Well, we could start with a conversation we had about Mad Max. How feminist is Spy? Oh, but, yeah? You know, that, that <laughs> Let's was, not go there. That was such fun. I think I'll set that aside, although I think it's a little bit feminist. But, yeah, I've been longing for a vehicle that did justice to Melissa McCarthy's talents. Identity Thief with Jason Bateman was a disaster. The Heat had its moments, but still kind of backed away from letting her do what she does best at the end. And Tammy, it was, I believe, one of my most anticipated films of that year because I've been waiting for this so long. And that didn't work out either. i kind of given up. I think I joked to you at some point that, watch, we're not even going to consider Spy and it's going to be the one that works for her. And you know what? It does work for her. It does the trick. Uh, She's reteaming here with director Paul Feig, who did make The Heat and also Bridesmaids as director. And it's an amusing spy spoof. Maybe the irony, she's very funny in it, but the irony might be is it mostly works because of its supporting cast. Hmm. Statham 
is hysterical. I mean, he's he's just playing it straight, really, yeah. sending himself and nobody up, really plays it straighter than no, Statham. No, I don't, I don't think he has another option, but he gets this monologue bragging. He's this spy who's the, this sexist guy who's so incensed that Melissa McCarthy's desk jockey is getting sent out into the field that he tries to push her aside and is often bragging about all his exploits. And he goes into this monologue of just ridiculous things he's done. That's absolutely hysterical. We also have Allison Janney, very funny as her droll superior. And Rose Byrne is quite amusing as this egotistical, ruthless arms dealer who's sort of the opposite of the undercover roles that McCarthy's character is given. She's assigned all these dowdy roles Mm -hmm. like Cat Lady or Dumpy Mother (laughs) of Five. And and Rose Byrne is like this fashionista arms dealer. So there's a lot of amusing interplay there. And McCarthy, again, is funny. But what she is best at is this really aggressive, angry, tornado fury humor. She's very much like someone like early Adam Sandler, actually. that That's when I think she's hitting her stride. And this movie is doing something different. Essentially, her character is... A nice woman who's just looking for some adventure in her life and finds it by becoming this in-the-field spy. And so it works overall. It's a funny movie. I'd recommend it. I don't know if it's quite that zenith of what Melissa McCarthy can do, but hey, at this point, I'll take it. Yeah, I really haven't seen a lot of what she's done since Bridesmaids, but watching her on Saturday Night Live, for example, and seeing her in a lot of scenes from Tammy and a few other movies that I've gone past on HBO— they all seem to really emphasize the bull in a china shop nature of her character, which for me is only funny for a little bit. There's just something about it, especially I mentioned SNL. She's hosted at least once. I do still fairly consistently watch SNL, at least on DVR. And they really did just scene after scene, skit after skit. It was sort of just a variation on that same thing. Everything she did, she was the loudest person in the room. She was the most destructive person in the room. And She obviously feels comfortable doing that. There's something essential there. She's a physical comedian in a lot of ways. I guess it's just me. There's something about it I find a little bit tiring after a certain point. Is Spy This might be the one for you to watch Okay, because there's a little bit of that, but really there's also some fairly finesse fight scenes that she's involved in. It's it's sort of bizarre. The fight scenes, Feig, again, is the director, are really well choreographed, extremely gory in this sort of absurdist funny way and she gets some too that are you know it's the it's the opposite of that bull in the china shop they're they're pretty slick hmm. so maybe this is the one for you to check out all right larson recommends melissa mccarthy and spy aruba jamaica bermuda bahama i don't think any of those will be on our top five movie locations we wish we could visit key largo ah huh? perhaps that one the film spotting top five is next stay with us Late night drives and hot french fries And friends around the country From Charlottesville to good old Santa Fe When I think of you, you still got on That hat that says let's party I hope that thing is never That you always 
May all your favorite bands stay together I'm just waking up and I'm not thinking clearly So don't quote me Hey, Film Spotters, just a very quick interruption here to mention a couple of donors and also our featured artist this week. It is the band Dawes from the new album, All Your Favorite Bands. Josh, are you familiar with Dawes? I am familiar with Dawes. Do not I own am. any of their albums. I'm a big but, fan. Okay. Big fan, and I've gotten kind of obsessed with them, and they do have a brand new album out called All Your Favorite Bands. They're playing this weekend's Bonnaroo Music and Arts Festival in Manchester, Tennessee, then on to Cincinnati and Columbus, Ohio, and Charlotte, North Carolina on the 17th. I just missed them, couldn't make it, had a conflict. They just played Chicago earlier this week. But if you missed them there as well, you're a local listener, you could make the drive to Madison, Wisconsin. They're playing on the 20th. More dates and information at dawestheband.com. That is D-A-W-E-S. I said it was going to be a quick segment, Josh. We want to thank a new $5 a month donor. She is Evelyn in La Habra. California. And we got our annual Silver Club donor since 2006 donation from Mike Weston. He is Mike, one's a party, one's a crowd. That's his Sam Van Hallgren nickname. He lives out in Silicon Valley, California. And his new buck a show, he's been doing this for a couple of years now since the start of Film Spotting SVU. He's not only donating $1 a week for weekly episodes of Film Spotting throughout the year, but 26 bi-weekly SVU episodes. I don't think I've ever paid them their cut. Poor Matt and Allison. <laughs> You've got a lot I to hope, catch up on. I hope they're putting dinner on the table. I need to get them their cut from Mike. I do apologize to Matt and Allison. I apologize to Mike, but he has been that Silver Club donor since 2006. Talk about people who have stuck with us through a lot of years and been huge supporters. We really do appreciate it. And although those are the only two new donations this week, we of course have a lot of monthly subscribers that really do keep the show going. And thank you so much for sending some of your hard-earned cash our way. I hope that life without a chaperone is what you thought it'd be. I hope your brother's El Camino runs forever. Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by BuzzFeed's Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer of Screen Crush, focusing on the world of online movies. More information at filmspottingsvu.com or subscribe to the show on iTunes. Hello, listeners of Film Spotting Original Recipe. This is Matt Singer from Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit, inviting you to check out our latest episode where I'm joined by Matt Patches, senior writer for Esquire.com and co-host of the excellent Fighting in the War Room podcast, who's filling in for Allison Wilmore while she's traveling for work. Inspired by Matt's recent article about Hollywood's current obsession with 80s remakes, we're going to review John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China. Plus, we're going to recommend some other movies that are currently in the remake pipeline that you can rent or stream at home right now. To listen, search for us in iTunes or check us out at filmspottingsvu.com. Hey, I'm Ty Sheridan. And I'm David Gordon Green, the director of the film Joe, and we're here on Film Spotting. You're listening to Film Spotting. Our top five this week is Movie Locations We Wish We Could Visit. It's a list that originally aired back in March 2013, along with our review of Sam Raimi's Oz the Great and Powerful. Wow, I hate how that did, movie. How did I ever talk you into reviewing Oz the Great and Powerful? I don't Powerful. know, but we did. And it was good. That we China girl. About that it. China girl, Adam, don't you remember? I know. 
that was the one decent scene. <laughs> The one decent scene in that whole movie, but inspired by Oz, probably thinking a little bit more of the Wizard of Oz, we did this top five movie locations we wish we could go to, and I think that top five was a lot of fun. We'll see here in a moment, even if our idea of movie locations we want to go to isn't exactly filled with the most obvious picks. No, they look a little odd now when when we look back on them. Well, if your idea of the type of locations you want to visit are maybe the types of places that have magical creatures in distant times or distant galaxies. We're not going to have a whole lot of those, but stick around after our list because we're going to share some listener feedback that we didn't get to back when we originally did these lists in response to the top five. And there's at least one mention of Middle Earth, Josh. So we'll try to balance things out a little bit. We're going to start with a clip from a movie that didn't make either of our lists, but couldn't be more appropriate for this show. How fast are they? Well, we clocked the T-Rex at 32 miles an hour. T-Rex? Mm-hmm. You said you've got a T-Rex? Uh-huh. Say again. <laughs> we have a T-Rex. Uh, put, your, put your head between your knees. <laughs> Dr. Grant, my dear Dr. Sattler, welcome to Jurassic Park. That's Sam Neill, Laura Dern, and the great Richard Attenborough from Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park, which seemed appropriate to set up this week's top five movie locations we wish we could visit. But not die in. But not die in. Exactly right. And that might be one reason why Jurassic Park is actually an honorable mention for me only, because you do think if you went there, things very well could go badly. But in that scene, that sequence right there that we played is the one that I most remember from that film. I remember being just so caught off guard and amazed at the CGI there Mm -hmm. and thinking what it would be like. I was a dinosaur guy when I was a kid, like probably most young boys were. So I had that boyish rush when I saw those dinos on the screen. And it'd be a fun place to visit, but you're right, not die in. And that may come up a few times as we go through our lists, actually. I think for me, as we set up these lists, the key word really there is wish. We wish we could visit because we are not beholden to reality here. It is not about picking actual movie locations or actual sets. It's about fantasy places that only exist in cinema that we'd love to go to. Yeah, fantasy is the key. My list leaned very heavily that way. Otherwise, I didn't put a lot of stress into putting this together. It it felt like another one of these personal ones Mm -hmm. where these are places that just hit you to the core when you first saw them and you want to go there and you remember them. Yeah, I agree. I think I would just add, for me, it couldn't be just a cool place that you'd want to go see for the sake of seeing it. For example, the firehouse in Ghostbusters. Very memorable, (laughs) but... That's for like a studio tour. Yeah, but it's not something I'd be dying to go visit or even Nakatomi Plaza in Die Hard. Very memorable location. It'd be fun to go there, just as you said, on maybe a studio tour. But these are places you truly would want to spend some time in on their own, completely separate from the connection to the movie. So you're right. The key is that fantasy aspect. It's a place that only the movies or art could transport you to. So with that all said, what's your number five? Well, some people on Twitter and Facebook suggested Brazil, some suggested Dark City, but I went with the 1927 silent film that inspired both of those, Fritz Lang's Metropolis. 
Now, this goes back to Jurassic Park it's a little bit. It's an oppressive world, Josh. It's oppressive. It's a dark place. It's not the safest of places either. In fact, I think it was about a year ago that it made my list of the top five movie dystopias. So may seem like a little bit of an odd My pick. number five, Soylent Green. <laughs> Let me explain. I wouldn't necessarily want to visit those massive underground factories where the laborers toil with the huge gears and levers. I'm, I don't want to go there. And I'm definitely not interested in the airy gardens of the aristocratic class. I mean, that just looked kind of boring, to be honest with you. But how about the towering city itself, that middle ground where a lot of the action takes place with the multi-level expressways that weave among all those buildings? You even have the dilapidated cottage of the mad inventor Rotwang. Very cool to check that out, squished between those two tall modern buildings. So Metropolis, for me, just remains, even though it's from 27, still one of the screen's most unique visions of a place. So why wouldn't you want to visit it? I agree. I agree. It's one that does You'll take the chance. You'll go with me. Problematic, but it's such a remarkable world that is created on screen, especially when you consider it being 1927. And I think when it came up during our silent films marathon ages ago, I think it was like 2006, maybe that was one of the things I really responded to was how much you can see the influence of Metropolis in every single science fiction film that's followed. And you mentioned a couple of big ones there. Well, I'm going to stick with the dangerous theme here, but still being so astounded by it that I'd be drawn to it. And it's a place that comes from a film of the same name that's definitely going to come up whenever we get around to anointing the next batch of nominees to be potentially put into the film spotting pantheon. It is Solaris, the planet Solaris, from the Tarkovsky film from 1972. But I do also love the 2002 version directed by Steven Soderbergh. It definitely has made a fair number of lists over the years, but not for a good six months or so, Josh, so I feel comfortable bringing up Solaris. The only reason it's at number five And why I almost left it off my list completely is that there is a big downside. You will probably lose your mind if you visit the planet and never leave or lose your mind, never leave and end up killing yourself as one of the scientists does. It's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah, it's it's not maybe a happy place, but I will pose to you. How could you resist the opportunity to visit a planet that allows you to interact with loved ones you've lost in a way that absolutely feels real and there'd be almost a challenge to it in could you stay detached and could you study it and observe? Would you want to stay detached or would you actually choose to live in that fantasy realm, even if it goes against all your rational thoughts? Even knowing what I was in for, I might just sign up for that mission, I have to be honest. You're going to be the first man to Mars, aren't you, Adam? That's it. I like it. (laughs) Number four, I'm going to offer as defense for all those misguided poll voters who Selected Sam Raimi over Tim Burton. I got to go back a ways. Andy was only producer, but it was his idea. Halloween Town, The Nightmare Before Christmas. Henry Selleck actually directed the stop motion feature, and it turned on Burton's ingenious idea that each holiday has its own town. Now, let's be honest, who's interested in Christmas Town? I mean, those Christmas year-round stores... I can't stand those places, so I don't want to go to Christmas Town. Much prefer the endlessly ghoulish town of Halloween. This is a place that doesn't just have jack-o'-lanterns, it's a field full of jack-o'-lanterns, and when they open their glowing mouths, out come these misty ghosts. 
among my favorite detail touches and stop motion is all about the details is how that precipice that Jack Skellington stands upon when he's silhouetted against the moon. It's really the iconic image from the movie. I love how the precipice uncurls before his feet as he walks so he has somewhere else to go. I'm not goth, Adam. That's not in my background. You were a, no, a, you're, a dino boy, I believe you your said. Your red but... pants certainly aren't goth, Josh. <laughs> no, no. But hey, I love this film. Okay, fair enough. A great pick there, The Nightmare Before Christmas. For my number four, I'm going to stick with this blurred line between reality and fantasy theme, which I didn't plan. It just came up as I went through my picks, and it's the example of coincidence spotting I was referring to earlier in the show as we talk about Letter from an Unknown Woman and that sense of illusion and fantasy that those characters have largely created for themselves. And my place is Caden Cotard's Warehouse from Synecdoche, New York, the Charlie Kaufman film. And if you've seen it, you know that Philip Seymour Hoffman plays Caden Qatar. He is a dramatist. He's a playwright. And even though he's struggling severely in every aspect of his life, especially personally, he somehow gets a MacArthur Fellowship grant and decides with it to rent out this warehouse, this huge open space, and basically recreate New York and recreate his life within that space. And throughout the course of the film, the warehouse just continues to expand and the people in it, and the places within it. And he also starts to bring in doppelgangers, people replicating not only the lives of normal people, quote-unquote, but his own life and other people associated with this play, if you can call it that, he's putting on. So I think about this great scene with Philip Seymour Hoffman and Emily Watson as Caden Hazel and Tom Noonan and Samantha Morton as their doppelgangers. And you've got Caden not approving of how cutesy the imitation versions of them are getting with each other. I love those kind of touches, again, where that line really blurs in interesting ways. But for me, being inside that warehouse, not a place I'd want to stay for too long, but I would love to be in it. I'd love to observe a world like that for as long as I could before getting completely consumed by it, maybe setting up my own shop somewhere within it, which probably would happen. I can totally see you there. Yeah, I, I think I'd love it. I think you'd be quite comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> Well, obviously, fantasy, as we talked about, dominated this list for both of us. That's where my mind instantaneously went. But I did want to think about, just to play the game, were there any more realistic film creations that would be great locations to go to? And I did come up with one. I'm going to call it my Cheers pick, because when I was a kid, I always wanted to hang out at the bar in Cheers, even though it was complete fiction. Of course, this is before I grew up and realized they were probably all mostly functioning alcoholics and maybe <laughs> wasn't the best you got to aspire to something, Josh. I guess, I guess. So my spot like this is the press room at the courthouse in His Girl Friday. This is the 1940 screwball comedy in which Cary Grant's newspaper editor convinces his ex-wife and former star reporter, played by Rosalind Russell, to cover one last story. It's the execution of a convicted murderer. A lot of the central action in the film takes place in this press room at the courthouse where the reporters, they gather there, they commiserate, they gossip. Sometimes they'll do a little bit of work. Now I give that marriage three months and I'm laying three to one. Any takers? I'll take that bet. It's getting so a girl can't leave the room without being discussed by a bunch of old ladies. Hello, Post. Hey, get me Walter Burns, will you, please? Oh, I don't get sore, Hildy. We were only saying a swell reporter like you wouldn't quit so easy. Uh, this is Hildy Johnson. Oh, I can quit all right without a single quiver. I'm going to live like a human being, not like you chumps. 
Now, I never worked in a newsroom that was really like this, even though I've been at a couple newspapers. (laughs) I don't know if they ever really existed to this degree, at least. But my first newspaper job at a local weekly paper sort of aspired to that sort of camaraderie. And whenever I watch His Girl Friday, it at least always gives me fond memories of that job. Yeah, I can see that. Of course, I love His Girl Friday, but... Don't you know that you're not allowed to actually bring that up because you're not Michael Phillips? Yeah, I his know. His Girl Friday is his go-to film. He had it on a recent list. Yes, it's true. He's had it on like three recent <laughs> lists, actually. But you really can't blame him. It's it's one of the all-time great screwball it comedies, is. if not the greatest. There is a very funny SNL skit. I don't remember who the host was or when it was from. Maybe five or six years ago. I wonder if other listeners out there remember this one where it's a newsroom set And it's either the case where the new young reporter thinks she's like Hildy, who talks in the screwball kind of way, but everybody else is like, what is she talking about? (laughs) Or it's the other way around, and they're all like that, and she's not. I can't remember, but it's actually very funny if you're a fan of a movie like His Girl Friday. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're sharing the top five movie locations we wish we could visit, inspired by our return to Oz in Sam Raimi's film, Oz the Great and Powerful. And yes, the reality versus fantasy theme will continue with my number three, but in a really direct way they're going to collide here because unlike my last two choices solaris or caden's warehouse this is a place that you can actually go and visit and i have but the real version just doesn't measure up to the screen fantasy it's not heaven josh it's iowa iowa the field of dreams which as i said i've been to it's in dyersville Iowa. You can go actually be out on the field. You can see the house there. But I want to go to the Field of Dreams with the players. I want to get out on the field with the 1919 Chicago White Sox and other baseball legends. And yes, maybe get a chance to play catch with your dad again. That sounds pretty amazing. And that end scene when Costner gets that little frog in his throat at exactly the right moment when he asks his dad to have a catch. Hey, Dad? You want to have a catch? I'd like that. It gets me every time, even though I've never heard anyone actually use the phrase, have a catch. I certainly never called it that myself. But that scene, the other one that gets me every time in Field of Dreams, Josh, is the scene in the van with James Earl Jones and Kevin Costner, and they pick up the hitchhiker along the road, the young kid, and he says he's looking for a place to play ball. And they tell him they're going to just such a place, and they ask him his name, and he says, it's Archie Graham. And we realize it's the younger version of Moonlight Graham, Burt Lancaster, from where they just came. And that music twinkles a little bit, and James Earl Jones and Costner just look at each other completely dumbfounded. It chokes me up every single time. So... I like baseball. It was the only sport I ever played. And being out on that field, actually getting to interact, obviously, in a fantasy world like that with those legendary players, that'd be pretty remarkable. Only one question before I go see the real Field of Dreams. Is there a pizza ranch nearby? I know you are a huge fan of the pizza ranch. I'm guessing there's one within about three blocks. I like it. All right, number two for me, the Belafonte in the Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Wow. This is one of Wes Anderson's more maligned pictures with Bill Murray as a misguided explorer. But I really like it. What can I say? The Belafonte is Zissou's research vessel. And the movie boasts one of Anderson's. I think this is why it is maligned. People don't like it. Some people don't like it when he does this to such a degree. I'm raising my hand, yes. It's one of his most exactly imagined dollhouse diorama sets. It's this astonishing sequence we get of a cross-section, a giant cross-section of the ship, and we move from room to room to see what's going on. And there's action going on in each room all at the same time. Just love that. 
this too is not exactly a happy place. It has that same sense of melancholy that pervades all of Anderson's films. Definitely it's pervasive here, but I still wanted to be part of the expedition on this ship. I think maybe because like Anderson, I was infatuated with ocean explorer Jacques Cousteau as a kid. Loved the Jacques Cousteau. Yeah, you never saw those, huh? And drinking beer at Cheers. (laughs) You were some kids. Perfect Night was when Jacques Cousteau's ocean show was followed by Cheers. That was awesome. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think that was NBC's lineup, though. One of the more ingenious items I ever got from a PR department, as you know, they send these out for movies all the time, were Team Zisu trademark Speedos. Nice. That's what they sent. (laughs) Next live event. Can't say they ever got a lot of use. (laughs) Definitely don't have them anymore. But they didn't make oh, me laugh. Oh, come on. We could, we could make some money promising that, I think, Long Josh. gone, Adam. Long oh, gone. That's, that's too bad. So this is the part of the show where I should chide you for the fact that you picked a boat, which yes. is a vessel, which True. is a thing, and not a place, right? Go ahead if you want to. I wasn't really <laughs> doing any sort of grammar lesson while no, I was making this I, list. You but... know what? For me, it doesn't really count as a location, but here's where I'll give you the pass. There's no doubt, especially within the construct of that film, that that ship is their home. That is a community. It's what you always talk about when you bring up Wes Anderson. So I'll let it slide. Do you see the relief on my face? Yeah, I know. You you couldn't wait <laughs> to have me exonerate was you for that pick. So where do you actually rate The Life Aquatic in your ranking I of Wes Anderson films? I rate it above Darjeeling Limited. Okay. And trying to think if there's anything else, probably possibly above Bottle Rocket. So it's third from the bottom? Is that what you're saying? It's in the middle. It's in the middle. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was, for me, as I ranked it recently on Letterboxd. His worst. Just below Darjeeling Limited as my least favorite Wes yeah. Anderson film. It is film. for and a lot of people. I get a lot of grief for it. It's a film I only did see once and maybe should give another chance to. A movie that I do not need to give another chance to, because I actually rewatched it fairly recently. We talked about, I think, in some bonus content, and it's a movie I saw a hundred times as a kid. My place comes from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. It is Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. Hold your breath. Make a wish. Count to three. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look and you'll see into your imagination. I don't know if you've discovered this about me or not, Josh. I actually, I hide him under the the booth here. I had him under the console so you don't see it. I've got a bit of a sweet tooth. Aha. Uh-huh. So, you know, I've got chocolate stashed here in the room. I'm a fan of candy, particularly chocolate candy. And I'm not going to lie. If I walked into that room and saw that chocolate river, I'm going Augustus do all up in don't there. Don't do it. I am diving right in that chocolate river. I don't care what happens to me. They can, they can whisk me away. They can kick me out. I would just have to have that experience of diving in that chocolate river. But seriously, every room in that chocolate factory is incredible. There's something new and different and exciting wherever you go. In the case of that famous boat and that sequence that everyone remembers from Willy Wonka, especially if you were a kid and you were a little bit freaked out by it, something new and exciting and, yes, terrifying. But I think about that scene, how good, not only throughout that whole film, but especially in that scene, when that's the first room they really go into, how good is Gene Wilder as Willy Wonka? The song he sings, it's sort of bittersweet, it's melancholy, he's lamenting growing up, really, and nobody having time anymore to get lost in a place of imagination like that. And even if you are still young enough, if you're these kids, most of them, as he knows going into it, are kids who are going to come in and just be really greedy and take whatever they want because they think they deserve it. But for me, all the chocolate you could ever want in one place, that's paradise. See, I love that movie despite the fact that 
I don't really like chocolate. I don't do desserts. Somehow it still works and for me. I knew there was something wrong with you. That's that's the thing that's most wrong with you, Josh. This is at the root of all our disagreements. I think it I is. Think. My number one, the title names the location where the wild things are. Spike Jones' 2009 adaptation of the classic Maurice Sendak picture book was the best picture of that year, partly because of the unique world that was created. It was one that was true to Sendak's vision, which was very unique, but it was also something even wilder and weirder in a lot of ways. If you had such an impoverished childhood that no one read this picture book to you, it's about an unruly boy named Max who gets sent to his room for misbehavior. I'm also raising my hand. You, did, you didn't watch Jacques Cousteau or read Where the Wild Things Are? Probably did see an episode of Jacques Cousteau, but no, no one ever read me. Alas, uh, poor after, boy that I after am. After we're done recording, I'll read it to you. I love it. <laughs> well, Max imagines that he's transported to a land of dangerous and bizarre creatures who make him king. Now, Jones and his collaborators, they bring this to life with all sorts of elaborate creative elements. They use natural landscapes. They also use these giant puppets. There is some computer imagery going on here, but it's very subtle. And, of course, there's great voice work going on. I have an idea. Come out! No! Why not? Because uh, you're going to hit us in the head with dirt. Come out! No! Why not? Because when I said you're going to hit us in the head with dirt, you didn't say anything! That means you're planning to hit us in the head with dirt! Man... You really have us figured out. So this place is basically the best playground ever. They spend a lot of time building forts, rampaging through forests, but there's also a sense of danger. It's similar to Willy Wonka, as you pointed out. The surroundings here are dangerous because the wild things themselves, partly, not just because it's this scary forest. I mean, these things could turn on Max at any minute. I think that's what I most liked about this movie is that it did recognize and devoted itself to the feral nature of kids, the side of them that we parents kind of whisper about in concern to each other at night after they're in bed <laughs> right. and they've been really bad. And we realize we're raising wild things yeah, as I've well. I've got one of those. <laughs> I do have one of those. I believe it. Uh, this is really, it's just a great, quickly forgotten film. I love Where the Wild Things Are. I am a big fan of that film as well. But that choice coming off of Willy Wonka marks another difference between us, Josh, which is you're a little bit more of an outdoorsy guy than I am, I'd prefer the chocolate factory where there's probably air conditioning. <laughs> there probably is. I really don't need to be out in the they wild. they got to keep that chocolate river cool. Exactly. I don't want animals rampaging around me. They're smelly. I need a hotel or somewhere that has a nice bed I can stay in. I think you're onto something there. And I think I would find that type of luxurious life in my number one pick for the movie location I most wish I could visit. Cue up the George Gershwin. Like the Field of Dreams, this is a place that really exists. It's Manhattan. It's New York City. But it doesn't quite exist the way it looks through the eyes of Woody Allen and his DP Gordon Willis in his 1979 gorgeous black and white film, of course, called Manhattan. Chapter one. He adored New York City, although to him it was a metaphor for the decay of contemporary culture. How hard it was to exist in a society desensitized by drugs, loud music, television, crime, garbage. Too angry. I don't want to be angry. Chapter 1. He was as tough and romantic as the city he loved. Behind his black-rimmed glasses was the coiled sexual power of a jungle cat. Oh, I love this. New York was his town, and it always would be. 
as we hear his narrator at the beginning of the film, this is a place he romanticizes all out of proportion. And that is exactly what Woody Allen does throughout the movie Manhattan. It seems to be the most sophisticated, most beautiful, buzzing place in the entire world. And this actually just came up the other day, Josh, with a friend of mine. I was talking to him, and he remarked that he had never been to New York City before and really wanted to go. And I've only been there maybe three or four times, maybe five times. But I can remember each time, but especially that first time, having that feeling as you walk down the street, unlike any other place I've been. And I've been to some other countries. I've been to Paris and Rome and some other major cities, London, Dublin. Walking in New York City and feeling like you're always in a movie set. Hmm. You've seen it so many mm-hmm. times on screen, not just in Woody Allen films, but on TV throughout the history of cinema, that you have a weird relationship with it if you're not from there. And I do think we romanticize it probably all out of proportion to what life there is really like. And speaking of that, there is that downside with Woody Allen's Manhattan, as people have critiqued him over the years. It's going to be predominantly rich, and it's definitely going to be predominantly white. I think you have to acknowledge that, but I still really wish I could walk around all night with Isaac, with Mary, with Woody Allen and Diane Keaton in that film, just talking until the sun comes up and ending up under that Queensboro Bridge, the 59th Street Bridge, sitting on that park bench talking as the sun comes up. That, for me, is the location I most want to visit. I like that we both had black and white films on our list. I think that speaks to kind of the enduring appeal of that cinematography to create a sense of place. I think it also speaks to one of the very good things about Oz the Great and Powerful, those first 20 minutes. You had to recall that. (laughs) You had to go back. I was hoping you wouldn't, but you had to go back to Oz the Great and Powerful. What about some honorable mentions? What were other locations that were tough to leave off? Wanted to put Waterworld on this list. (laughs) There are many, many, many things wrong with this picture, but one thing they get really right is this vision of a flooded planet. I do have sort of a soft spot for Waterworld. Endor? You know, Return of the Jedi, it's it's my only opportunity to get an original trilogy film on a top five because Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back are in the pantheon. But I don't think Endor quite makes it for me. Even as a kid, I, I wasn't quite sold on the Ewoks. Yeah, I can see that. Neverland, of course, the Disney version. And lastly, Princess Mononoke's Medieval Japan. I think mm. that's what it is in yeah. that film. I could see a lot of Miyazaki being good picks for this list. I also considered the L.A. that we see in Blade Runner. Seems like a pretty fascinating world. We'll stick with Charlie Kaufman and go with John Malkovich's head. I'd like to be inside John Malkovich's head. Really? Would you really? Yeah, I would. Come on, to see what it's actually like to be somebody. You saw the movie. They they get pretty obsessed with it. It must be intoxicating to be inside John Malkovich's head. Another one that I have mixed feelings about but would be in awe of, certainly, is The Fortress of Solitude from Superman. Now... It'd be kind of cold. Boring. It'd be kind of cold. And since I'm not Superman, I can't really activate any of the cool stuff. Yeah. You're but just come looking on. at a bunch of How snow many and times ice. as a kid, though, I'll go back to where the wild things are. How many times as a kid did you get out there and pack snow and make a fort and just play in a fort? This is the fort that ends all forts. No, I, I was inside reading where the wild things are. Of course you were. <laughs> Finally, wouldn't it be fun to be a little bit hedonistic, at least through the 70s, not so much the 80s, in Jack Horner's mansion from Boogie Nights? Oh, yuck. I'd like to spend a weekend oh, at Jack no. Horner's mansion. Hello, Colonel. How are you? Oh, hello, Jack. <laughs> this is my lady friend, darling. I'd like you to meet Jack Horner, the finest director in the business. Hi. Hi. Do you have any Coke at this party? Oh, gosh, I'm sure they can find some somewhere. (laughs) So you want to stick with that as an honorable mention? Or were you just in some weird place back in March 2013? Just show me to the Coke room, Josh. But seriously, it's always been my dream to hang out with John C. Riley and compare how much we can squat and bench. That's not a bad idea. What would be more exciting than that? Maybe another venue, though. 
<laughs> well, he makes me a really bad drink in a blender. There's nothing better than that. But we'll see what our listeners came up with. Josh, this is some feedback that came in in response to this top five. Some of it we were able to share in our bonus content. If you have the Film Spotting app, we do regularly share some listener feedback and some additional audio content there. But some of it, Josh, has never been heard before. So let's start with Rob Bond. He's nearby Plainfield, Illinois. I caught up with your top five movie locations you wish you could visit and just could not keep silent. While some excellent choices were provided, I have to ask, how was there no mention of Middle Earth? or Hogwarts, the rolling hills of the Shire, massive Minas Tirith, Ooh. and beauty of Rivendell. You think I got that right? <laughs> your, your doubt there in your voice reveals so much about your nerd credentials, Josh. <laughs> Sorry. That would be enough to captivate me. Also, maybe it's just from growing up with it, but Hogwarts has always been a place of wonder and mystery that would be too good to pass up a visit. I also have a list loophole that would make mine, and that is Springfield, USA from the Simpsons movie. I know this is a product of growing up with Golden Age Simpsons, but with an official movie, the draw of visiting this bustling city with so many crazy and interesting characters is too much to miss. I don't know. Maybe I'm just not enough of a film snob yet, but I had to put in my two cents on this subject. Hmm. Thank you again for everything, and I can't wait for show 1000. Well, are we there yet? We're still a little ways <laughs> oh, away, okay. Josh. Leslie Lewis writes in, I have to go with Hobbiton in Middle Earth since I am over 65 it's not now. how you say Hobbiton. It's not? No, it is. <laughs> I definitely don't have the nerd credentials. Any place where I can hang out in a nice house with beautiful antiques is great. I'm also going for the smoking a lot of pipe weed, eating, dancing, and seeing weird little people, elves, and the like. It must have some good microbreweries and certainly some good neighborhood <laughs> bars. Well, now you're just... You're just reaching. I think Hobbiton would be the ideal old folks home for us boomers. Yeah, I probably should have gone with the Shire. I, I like these. You yeah. do. It's a good idea. You mentioned the Shire. Of course, I go with Hogwarts. I could actually, yeah. I could be inspired to go to Hogwarts. Now we got to redo these lists. N. We just got That's this all note we from got. N. All right. I noticed you chose a couple of places like Solaris or Field of Dreams where it's possible to recreate memories, broadly speaking. I think you would very much enjoy afterlife in this regard. And the place, the way station between life and death might be worth an honorable mention. Very moving, psychologically compelling, and philosophically very interesting as well. So a confession. I didn't actually re-listen to the whole top five before we replayed it here. And I don't think... I had made that connection until we got the email from N that I went with two places where you're sort of finding people from your past, loved ones. You're doing something miraculous that you couldn't actually do. It's just funny to me that I picked two of those in my top five. I don't know. It says something well, about a certain darkness in my spirit, I guess. At least that would explain or the hope. Solaris pick a little bit because that was a weird one. Weird one? Yeah. That was really, having, since we made these lists, watch Solaris again? Yeah. Nobody wants to go there. <laughs> Nobody wants to leave Solaris once they get there. That's exactly that's the answer, Josh. Jared Leg writes, Woody Allen's Paris and Midnight in Paris. I don't necessarily even think that I'd be crazy about the location or the time period, but I think it's just such an interesting idea to consider. I mean, how cool would it be to hop into a cab and see T.S. Eliot sitting there or be able to share a drink with Ernest Hemingway? I would definitely have to ask Eliot to recite Proof Rock for me. I do love that poem. Anyways, love the show. Keep up the good work. Sean from Allentown, Pennsylvania said, so the place that I would love to visit that only exists in the movies would have to be the Kit Kat Club in the 1972 Bob Fosse film Cabaret. Great pick. Whether it's the sometimes erotic but always disturbing song and dance numbers and the chance to see a man dance with a gorilla while commenting on anti-Semitism, this nightclub in 1931 Berlin looks like the place to be. Especially if the evening's events are opened by Joel Gray's uber-creepy master of ceremonies and closed by a ballad from Liza Minnelli's tortured Sally Bowles. 
From the first song, Willkommen, cinematographer Jeffrey Unsworth masterfully paints a picture of this dark, sadistic, carnival funhouse that is the Kit Kat Club. I mean, who wouldn't want to come to a place that has an endorsement like the one found in the first lines of the film's title song? What good is sitting alone in your room? Come hear the music play. Life as a cabaret, old chum, come to the cabaret. Good stuff. Peter Nesson says, what? No mainframe from Tron? For pure geek nostalgia from my childhood, the mainframe would be in my top five. It certainly should have been at least an honorable mention, as it ranks with movies like Labyrinth and Dark Crystal for pure imaginative 80s escapism. Ooh, Dark Crystal. That's another good one. (laughs) Aaron Neuwirth, in trying to avoid some of the great picks you guys already made, how about The Sandlot for a summer? Hanging with Sean and Ed in the Winchester, pre-zombie apocalypse, of course, in Shaun of the Dead, The Fifth Element's Futuristic New York, The Bowling Alley with the dude Walter and Donnie and the Big Lebowski, Jackrabbit Slims in Pulp Fiction, and a couple of honorable mentions here from Aaron, Champion Vinyl from High Fidelity, and The Fairy Tale Land that is Bruges from In Bruges. That's a really good pick, though. Going back to what I said about Solaris, all the characters in In Bruges want to do is get out of Bruges, so I don't know how telling that is. And I want to say, Aaron, that it's actually championship vinyl. Am I wrong? I don't remember that detail. You don't remember? I haven't seen High Fidelity in a long time. We close with Ken Link in Flagstaff, Arizona. As far as film settings I would like to visit, I'll take New York as well, following up my Woody Allen Manhattan pick. But for me, it would be the one imagined in The Hudsucker Proxy by the Coen brothers and their collaborator, Sam Raimi. It was a place where life truly was a circle, where people really did get what was coming to them, and where God and Satan live and work amongst the gears of a clock tower that can stop time. Also, St. Paul Newman lives there. What more could one want? I don't know. Which Coen brothers would I go with? I might have to go with my favorite, Miller's Crossing. Dangerous world, but, you know, enticing. You get to carry a gun. You'd look good in a suit, hopefully. Right, right. Okay. You'd speak a certain way that would be fun, a good patter there. Those are the top five movie locations we wish we could visit, revisited, plus your feedback. We want to hear your picks. Yes, share them again. Feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744, or find us on Twitter at filmspotting, that's Adam, and Larson on film, that's me. We're also at facebook.com slash filmspotting. Over at our website, filmspotting.net, you can find 10 years of reviews and top fives, including a review of Jurassic World director Colin Trevorrow's debut film, Safety Not Guaranteed. Also talk to director Colin Trevorrow about that movie when it was released. Also at our website, you can take a moment and vote in the current film spotting poll, Al Pacino's best performance since his 1992 Oscar win. Some tough choices there. Out in limited release this weekend, the Grand Jury Prize and Audience Award winner at this year's Sundance Film Festival, Me and Earl and The Dying Girl. It's been getting some good buzz. Also results, speaking of good buzz, the latest from Computer Chess director Andrew Bajowski. It stars Guy Pierce and Kobe Smulders, along with Kevin Corrigan. And Testament of Youth also out in limited release period drama set during World War I with Ex Machina's Alicia Vikander. The Gene Siskel Film Center is showing Madame Bovary with the very busy and always interesting Mia Vasakovska. That's also available via On Demand. And Shasha, this is a movie that I keep seeing little bits about on Twitter and on Letterboxd, Josh. And our friend and colleague, the king of the pithy letterbox entries, David Ehrlich, said this. An Andre Tarkovsky remake of The Searchers seen through a slide projector starring Viggo Mortensen as Andre Tarkovsky? It's just questions. Sounds like a movie location you would like to visit. No kidding. It's from experimental Spanish filmmaker Lissandro Alonso. That's Shasha, but it's J-U-J-A. And of course, in wide release, Jurassic World. Not exactly recommended, unfortunately, by either of us. Next week on the show, Josh will be holding down the fort with 
the beloved guest here on Film Spotting, Michael Phillips. You guys are going to talk about a film from beloved Pixar, their latest Inside Out. We will do our best without you. I'm sure you will manage. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, and our world. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music this week was from Dawes. It came from the new album, All Your Favorite Bands. There's more information at dawestheband.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempadar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.